0: Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is our second episode discussing Charles Dickens and his classic Christmas tale, a Christmas Carol. Last episode we begin our discussion talking a little bit about Dickens's life and the early experiences in uh, Victorian England that really shaped his career and his understanding of the world in general and also in particular the the year he spent at age 12 as an outcast on the streets of London working in a blacking factory. We talked about the governmental report on the conditions of over 30,000 urban poor children that inspired the tale. And uh, finally, we discussed the blended uh, choice of genres in which he chose to communicate his message, really, of social responsibility and personal redemption. A carol in prose, (laughs) as he called it, but it's also a ghost story, which was also a very unusual combination. And we ended where we want to start today, talking about the man who has charmed the world with his miserly ways, that one man, Ebenezer Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge. The name says it all. You don't even have to say Ebenezer.
0: (laughs) Yes, and even before we get into the fictional character of Scrooge, I'd like to start this episode getting back into the historical context of the book. Gary, wasn't there a real historical character that Dickens knew about that inspired this timeless (laughs) character?
1: Don't all authors have people that they know that inspire them? Well, interestingly enough, uh, there was a member of Parliament by the name of John Elwes who actually lived and died before Dickens' day, but was famous to almost a silly degree uh, for how miserly he was. L was inherited a fortune, and he was a multimillionaire by today's standards, but was absolutely famous for being stingy beyond anything a regional person would do. Um, as was his mother, who literally starved herself because she was too cheap to eat.
0: I'm not uh, that cheap. No,
1: I'm not either. <laughs> uh, but in elvis's case, he and his uncle, also a millionaire, who would eventually leave his fortune to his nephew, would pride themselves on how little they could live off of. They would sit up and rail against how much other people were... Spending while they were making it on so much less. And they would do this while splitting a glass of wine. (laughs) Elwes would go to bed when it got dark so he wouldn't have to spend money on candles. He wore clothes so raggedy that people mistook him for a beggar. Um, He would eat putrefied food. Ugh. I mean, one time he famously ate a hen that a rat had pulled out of a river.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So as not to waste it. And he refused to go to the doctor because he didn't want to pay them, and he would travel longer out of the way on roads that didn't have tolls on a skinny horse and riding back and forth to Parliament in the worst. And even on the coldest nights of the year, he would sit without a fire saying that eating was exercise enough to keep him warm this sounds a little <laughs> like the Scrooge we've been talking about with his coal and the fire safe box. Oh, I
0: do see the resemblance.
1: Well, it was really only a partial uh, inspiration. Now, Elle was unlike Scrooge, was actually extremely generous with others. Um, he was only really stingy with himself. He lost huge sums of money, uh, loaning money to people who couldn't pay him back. He also financed the uh, construction of some of London's famous landmarks, including... Part of Oxford Circus in Piccadilly. You might have heard of those places. So you can see, as with all fiction, um, he got inspiration, and then he went his own way with it.
0: Indeed. And and Scrooge is way more than a miser. Stephen Prickett, in his book Victorian Fantasy, said this, The strength of a Christmas carol lies, quite simply, in its psychological credibility. And I think that really starts with Scrooge. In the pages we read last episode, we saw way more than miserliness – I mean, this guy is a workaholic. He shuts himself off from his family. He has no friends, zero concern for other people. And one of the famous passages that actually comes back to haunt Scrooge when the ghosts repeat his own words later on, he callously rejects helping the poor, not just by refusing to help them, but by almost slandering them. I want to start Uh, This week by reading some of those famous words that will reverberate all the way through the book. So these two guys have shown up to his house and they're basically asking for food, not for food, but for donations. And they say, oh, I'm sure you're this liberal guy, uh, Mr. Scrooge, Mr. Marley. And they start asking about them. Uh, And he says, we have no doubt that his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner, said the gentleman presenting his credentials. To which Scrooge replies, it certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. "'At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge,' said the gentleman, taking up a pen, "'it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute "'who suffer greatly at the present time. "'Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir.' "'Are there no prisons?' asked Scrooge. "'Plenty of prisons,' said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. "'And the union workhouses?' demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are still, replied the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor laws were in full vigor then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. "'Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude,' returned the gentleman, "'a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund, to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. "'We choose this time, because it is a time of all others, where want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. "'What shall I put you down for?' "'Nothing,' Scrooge replied. "'You wish to be anonymous.' "'I wish to be left alone,' said Scrooge. "'Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, this is my answer. "'I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. "'I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. "'They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. "'Many can't go there, and many would rather die.' If they would rather die, said Scrooge, then they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that.
1: I love that line, decrease the surplus population. Uh, You know, I'd like to speak a little bit about the historical reference that Scrooge makes here in this section. Uh, There are several, and they matter. Workhouses were not something that Dickens invented. They were real things in Victorian England. And last week, uh, we talked about the idea that in this time period, if you owed money and you couldn't pay it back, your entire family could be sent to debtor's prison until you were able to pay it back. Workhouses were notoriously miserable with awful food and harsh conditions, and really not different from prison, actually. In theory, they sound like a good idea. Uh, you know, they are free places to live and work for people who couldn't find a job or shelter on their own, but they were terrible. And they were founded on this false premise that we see reflected uh, in what Scrooge is saying here. The general opinion of the upper and middle classes at the time was it poor people were responsible for their poverty because they were too lazy or too sinful, they drank too much, you know, something like that.
0: Well, Scrooge says that he can't afford to make, quote, idle people merry.
1: <laughs> yes, well, you know, no one in a workhouse was in danger of being merry and having that problem. I mean, workhouses were designed to be so bad that any normal person would do anything to get out of one, which, of course, was true, but... Getting out of poverty, um, as we all know, takes far more than just not being lazy or or having good morals. All those are helpful and necessary. Uh, Moving out of poverty takes some higher levels of intelligence and discipline and maybe even some luck or kindness from people that have the means. Uh, You know, the natural um, and complex obstacles to upward mobility was not something people without those impediments understood or even saw. I mean, beyond that... And perhaps even worse, um, there was a very influential man by the name of Thomas Malthus, who convincingly propagated the idea that Britain was heading to famine because of overpopulation. And He termed his problem uh, with the expression of the surplus population. <laughs> basically, his idea was, although this is a simplification, uh, but basically he believed the more helpless in society were surplus population And this group needed to die off and starve. Oh, my gosh. For Malthus, uh, poverty and suffering were God's way of teaching us the value of hard work and virtuous behavior, you know? Uh, So if we suffer, it's our own fault pretty much always. This term surplus population, which Scrooge actually uses— was literally Malthus' term, and almost all educated people at the time were familiar with it and believed it. uh, You know, the third interesting reference Scrooge mentions are the treadmills in the presence, not treadmills like we have at the gym, okay? Uh, These were famous (laughs) or rather infamous features of Victorian prisons.
0: You're not talking about Peloton bikes helping the inmates regain good health? (laughs) No,
1: I'm not. I mean, a penal treadmill was where the inmates would walk constantly And by walking, they would move a huge wheel while holding bars. And they were basically fueling a system to generate energy to grind corn into meal. And if you can imagine how exhausting this would be. I mean, I've read that prisoners were given, you know, basically 12 minutes of break between the hours that they were working this.
0: And to think that I complain about after 30 minutes (laughs) on a treadmill. It's mind-numbing, never mind physically exhausting. We
1: might not do well in Victorian England, (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, definitely it was a grind.
0: Ah, pun. (laughs) Uh,
1: So being in prison, obviously, is horrible. Living in a workhouse is terrible. And that left the group who were working in factories or lower-wage jobs. The one Scrooge references is only receiving 15 shillings a week.
0: Well, ironically, that's his wage to Bob Cratchit. And he was in full power to make Bob Cratchit's salary whatever he wanted to. But it wasn't something he thought about or saw here, um, Bob Cratchit's family obviously is going to embody this hard working group of people who are neither lazy nor immoral, obviously by definition. Uh, Cratchit worked for Scrooge, but he's not the only worker in his family. His children are obviously working and we can only assume that they are working in factories. We're even told that Martha comes in 30 minutes earlier this year than last year on Christmas. When we visit their Christmas celebration, they have cleaned up, they're dressed as best as they can, they're pitching in to create a humane and, and you know, vibrant environment. Their poor home has way more warmth in it than the coldness of Scrooges. <laughs> no
1: doubt. And it, we've talked about uh, the working conditions of these factories before, but it's really hard to conceptualize today uh, how massive this industry was in England at the time, and uh, just to put this perspective, Britain had less than 2% of the world's population, but it was producing two-thirds of the world's output just in coal. You know, Britain was producing millions of pounds of iron. They were leading the world in uh, cloth made from cotton and so many other consumer goods. I mean, it's nice stuff to have, you know, the stuff made in factories, but, uh, you know, what is the human cost, and especially at this level? and? This is a problem we're still talking about and have not resolved really on a global scale. I mean, every country that emerges into an industrial age does so on the backs of its working population and most often in factories. But, you know, honestly, this idea of building with human capital goes way back to the beginning of time. Now, in Manchester, uh, the town Dickens visited, this was the workshop of the world. I mean, it was fueling. So much production, but it was also notorious for working children like slaves. So uh, just to show you what I'm talking about, uh, six months after The Christmas Carol was published, a law was passed that limited children between the ages of 9 to 13 to working only (laughs) nine hours a day. Six days a week.
0: Mercy Those lazy,
1: lazy slackers. (laughs) Uh, And just to know how bad things were, uh, that was regarded as a humane reform. And, you know, don't worry about going to school. (laughs) So the middle class was a growing group, but they were also kind of desensitized to so much that was going on. Because, uh, you know, they were living good lives and they didn't actually see any of this stuff for themselves. And uh, Thomas Carlyle coined this phrase. The condition of England question uh, is describing what was happening all over England. Society was really dividing between the haves and the have nots, as societies have always done since the beginning of time. And with every other society, Britain's going to respond one way or another.
0: Well, Dickens illustrates not just the obvious problem of, you know, poverty and social problems, but. What he views is the coldness of this evolutionary and even instinctual idea of every person. Me first. I mean, Scrooge literally vocalizes this sentiment. And of course, we are uh, products of biology, of evolution. It's natural. But Dickens wants to say that our humanity, our consciousness makes us more than that. Because we are aware of ourselves, our relationship to others and Many other things, we can act against our own biological self interest and instead act against that in the interest of others. I can and should be better and kinder. You know, Dickens believed that any people group could be seen for who they really were by how they treat their children. He also did not believe that the solution was institutional. It's not government, it's not church, it's not school. Those are institutions. For Dickens, the solution was in the character of each individual who lived in any space. Scrooge, as expressed in stave one, has lost that which has made all of us, or makes him human, that which connects us. Scrooge has a problem of apathy.
1: Well... Apathy is certainly a problem, but, you know, is it the problem? Uh, I want to talk about Scrooge's mental state. As you know, I am probably. of Scrooge is neurotic. In other words, he has anxiety that is causing these behaviors that are not rational. Uh, And although apathy is there, um, you know, I see it as a symptom of a deeper problem. What is causing his apathy? Why would you want to keep your home so miserably? Uh, Why would you make fun of uh, your young nephew in love? And why would you mistreat your employee and be angry at others celebrating anything? I mean, some of Scrooge's behaviors uh, we've experienced ourselves and perhaps, although I don't venture into literary criticism, may account with why why it's hard to hate him and it's easy to pity him. I mean, why do we do stuff like this?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that people criticize about A Christmas Carol, and I've read this in more than one place, but that the story's just not realistic. It's not realistic to suggest that a mean person can be a nice person after one night, that any person can just change, that they're capable of seeing the evil in their ways with just a few examples and then reform. Many suggest that an apathetic person who has spent years nurturing this and Practicing cruelty can't very easily be made sympathetic.
1: You know, I can see that. And, of course, that's true in real life. I mean, it's not realistic that we change in one night. But for me, really, the suspension of reality is something um, that I find myself doing easily in the story. The story literally says... Once upon a time.
0: <laughs> I guess that's a giveaway.
1: Right, which makes me think fairy tale and then not too soon after that, you know, the knocker in the door transforms into Marley's face. You know, not the most realistic thing to believe in. Well,
0: of course, that's a good point. Ghost stories in general are not very realistic. In general. Okay. <laughs> which takes us to Dear Sweet Marley. Well he's definitely a ghost, but he's not your traditional Casper floating around a room covered in a bed sheet and slamming doors. I mean he's wearing regular clothes, he's transparent through to the bowels. That's kind of a funny way to say that. <laughs> he's weighed down by a chain made by cash boxes and keys and padlocks and ledgers and deeds and heavy purses, wrought in steel, all of these elements of money. Marley is fettered, and according to him, by the chains he forged in life. He says, I made it link by link, yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it.
1: Mm. Again, he's talking about us doing things that become our chains. The example Dickens chooses is a common one, our finances. I mean, why do people hoard money? I mean... I'm not saying save money. I'm saying hoard it. Why do some rich people accumulate way more money than they could ever spend? Is there a responsibility with wealth to contribute personally, really, to the general welfare of others? Or is that something you pay the state or another institution to do for you? And you know, also, is my wealth... A product of being better than other people in one way or another, or smarter, or more talented, or more beautiful, you know, all the things Malthus would think? Uh, or is my place in this world a matter of really a biological jackpot of sorts, like Warren Buffett teaches? I mean, these are tough issues. Dickens is very interested in the story in money and what it actually does and what it can do.
0: Well, I want to say that Dickens, like all of us, struggled In his own life with money. So, you know, he can't really throw stones. Uh, He never resolved these problems. And honestly, when I read Dickens' biography, there are many ways that he resembles Scrooge, if I'm
1: just being honest. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't think Dickens is criticizing Scrooge for having money.
0: No, I really don't either. In fact, there's no way Fred, his nephew, could be considered poor. I mean, he's throwing a really nice party. There's lots of people. He has a very nice house.
1: And Dickens isn't criticizing money, having money, or or telling us how to distribute it. He's pointing out something totally different. You know, for Marley and obviously for Scrooge, all that money had really produced an undesired effect in Scrooge. And in the words of Kierkegaard in his book about anxiety, it created, instead of freedom, which is what people want for money. It created unfreedom. It became an obsession.
0: Unfreedom. Unfreedom. Use that word. <laughs> There's a strange turn and phrase, but you know I can see what he means. It's not that you're a slave. You're not. You're just unfree. Chains of your own making, so says Marley. Interestingly enough, though, Scrooge compliments Marley on his sense of business. But he doesn't seem all that sad that Marley's dead. <laughs> Marley was his best friend, but... For those two, that didn't mean much. Their relationship to money was closer than their relationship to each other. That was their mutual understanding. When Scrooge basically tries to be kind and pay Marley a compliment that he thinks he would like, he's good at business, Marley says, "'Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business.'" It seems Marley, as with the other ghosts that Scrooge saw with Marley as they floated out the window, were fated to a strange curse. Now that they're dead, they have empathy. (laughs) (laughs) These were ghosts floating around, seeing and feeling the pain and suffering of living people, but now they can't help them. They can only feel their pain. It's really an unusual perspective of the afterlife, not one that I've ever seen in any kind of Sacred text. Although this idea of having regret after death, metaphysical regret, is uh, you know uh, a religious concept.
1: but uh, yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating. That your punishment in the next life is to have empathy that you can't, <laughs> that you can't stop. That is a great idea that that Dickens has thrown in here. Now, when we get into stage two, we start hearing bells, which I just really gave up trying to understand. I mean, I could could not follow the sense of time in the book, and I don't think Scrooge could either.
0: Well, you know, it's a carol. It's not linear. It's cyclical. So you are to be utterly confused by the bells and by time in general. But just so you know, all the ghosts visit Scrooge at 1 a.m. He goes to sleep at 2 a.m. Then he wakes up at midnight. So there you go. (laughs) Time is resetting itself. Then at the end, we wake up on christmas day
1: yeah that kind of has like uh the bill murray groundhog day feel about <laughs> it you know
0: yeah that's a good way to look at it you know bill murray is another guy that would make a great scrooge
1: <laughs> he actually did play the part of scrooge really? in a christmas yes he yeah. did
0: all right there you go i do think uh the bells though create tension they strike and striking bells freak me out i mean i don't know if that's everyone <laughs>
1: okay <but laughs> i didn't know that yeah
0: well time is an important idea for dickens this book is obsessed with time Uh, That's the other great commodity of humans here on Earth. Um, There's a lot of time traveling. But notice that Scrooge, from the very beginning, also associates money with time. He's all mad because he's losing an entire day's wages by giving Cratchit a single day off all year. You know, Dickens, in some ways, is asking us to think about time. What do we do with this valuable resource? I mean, it's non-renewable, and we have it in equal measure, independent of how much money we have. Until the day we don't.
1: <laughs> Until it runs out. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, we meet the ghost of Christmas past, and this unusual ghost with white hair and no wrinkles. Take Scrooge to where he grew up as a child. And what we are immediately struck with is really the insecurity of Scrooge's early years. His father was cruel. There's no mention of a mother, which suggests to me that tragedy of some sort has occurred. They get to the boarding school, and everyone is left except one solitary child, uh, neglected by his friends. And strangely enough, when Scrooge sees him, he sobs. I mean, The child is reading fantasy stories uh, by what Dickens describes as a feeble fire. And he's imagining heroes like Alibaba, larger-than-life ones, the kind that find princesses. And he's living vicariously a a life he knows he can't have because those responsible for loving him have betrayed him. This insight offers understanding, really, as to why Scrooge is so cold You know, it's a matter of self-protection that makes him so mean and dismissive of his nephew for falling in love. And here uh, he's crying as he sees a young boy because he's experiencing all that pain all over again. As an adult, he had learned to shield himself to kind of kill that part of himself so that it didn't hurt anymore. And if you want to use Dickens' language in this way, Scrooge has already made himself dead as a doornail. And if you're dead, you can't feel, and if you can't feel, you don't experience pain. And, you know, he references his sister, a little fan, Fred's mom, talking about how big of a heart she had, how much she loved, but then she died, and he was abandoned. And this is the kind of pain that makes people want to withdraw, you know, I think all of which is very Freudian.
0: Well, we see this withdrawal for me, vividly illustrated with the scene with his fiance. The fiancé accuses Scrooge of replacing her for money.
1: He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a morning dress, in whose eyes there were tears, which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, she said softly, to you very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve what idol has displaced you he rejoined a golden one this is the even-handed dealing of the world he said there is nothing on which is so hard as poverty and there is nothing that professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth you fear the world too much she answered gently all your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach I've seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. Have I not? What then, he retorted. Even if I've grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed toward you. She shook her head. (laughs) She literally says, you fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged in the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. In other words... You think that through money, you can insulate yourself against the world.
0: Well, you know, don't we all? I mean, money can buy solutions to an awful lot of problems.
1: Well, absolutely it can. But what we see emerging in Scrooge is the maladaptive and irrational use of money. I mean, it's the end-all, be-all. it insulates him from everything. Uh, he's purchased a way to push beyond everything. I mean, uh, not even the extremities of the weather affect Scrooge. He's that cold. He's that self reliant, but he's also that apathetic. I mean, he's cold to everyone, including himself.
0: Yikes. I can't even imagine. That cold.
1: <laughs> I think he's done a great job I of know. painting a pathetic character here.
0: Well, which brings us to stave three in The Ghost of Christmas Present. So we see that Scrooge, in some sense, got what he wanted, or at least what he thought he wanted. He got what he strove for. He's independent. He bought this with his money. But what did he lose in the process? He lost his innocence. And when I use that word, I'm not talking about naivete, but I'm talking about innocence in a positive sense. When we see stave three, we see comparisons, and we get to compare him with Fred's family and the Cratchits, and the word innocence comes to mind. Innocence is in the opposite of cynicism. Innocence in the sense that you can wonder at the world. You can find delight and fun things, to find joy. Scrooge has none of that. Staves three and four uh, are about seeing. There are a lot of references to eyes. Christianity is the faith of Charles Dickens, and Christianity teaches that we must confess or openly acknowledge what the Bible terms as sins or harmful behaviors before we can be free of them. That's the Catholic idea of confession. But what is confessing? Well, it's really kind of the same thing as seeing, really seeing and acknowledging what you're seeing. It's The same thing that we see Homer do in the Odyssey, uh, when he makes Odysseus go to Hades. Lots of ancients of different cultures emphasize this concept that you have to stare at your own darkness in order to get out of it. Lots of writers have said this in tons of stories in different ways, most obviously, and of course, Star Wars, it's a good example. But in order to see the light, you have to stare into the darkness, the darkness around you and the darkness in you. You can frame it in religious terms, philosophical terms, psychological terms. Dickens frames it in ghost terms. Hmm. And the second ghost is Father Christmas. Father Christmas sits among a world of plenty, and he sprinkles incense from his torch on people's food, and it has a magical effect of making people stop arguing. Father Christmas is an enormous ghost that can fit into any home. Christmas can and does fit into any home of any size or wealth, but what exactly does he want Scrooge to see in all this?
1: Well, let me say this. So far, Carl Jung would be so proud of this story, okay? <laughs> so but if we're just looking at the Cratchits, we see a group of people that's obviously poor, and he makes a point to emphasize that they are an unattractive family. The older children work. The youngest is going to die because lack of medical care. Uh, But they have dignity and they have grace. And the mom and the daughter Belinda, you know, they wear ribbons to make themselves pretty. And no one wants to complain about the insufficiency of the food. But they do have a true sense of respect and generosity.
0: And I read, There was nothing of high marks in them. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known and very likely did the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirits' torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on tiny Tim, until the last, they're happy because they love each other. They strive to protect their own innocence. But life is a cruel master, and Scrooge's name is brought up, and the entire family knows that he's partly responsible for their situation. I mean, he's their father's employer. But Bob Cratchit refuses to allow a single one of them to descend into bitterness. He fights against that cynicism. He makes them bless Scrooge against their will, not for Scrooge's sake, but for the sake of his family. The ghost wants Scrooge to see this. Scrooge made different choices than Cratchit did when he was confronted with pain and hardship. This scene is where Scrooge is clearly moved to pity, but the ghost won't let Scrooge off the hook. He uses Scrooge's own words against them when Scrooge asks if Tiny Tim will die. The ghost says if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Say he will be saved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? He be like to die. He had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Ooh, don't you always
1: hate it when your words come back to haunt you? I mean, he uses Malthus's term, uh, and that had come out of Scrooge's mouth and stave one when the charity people asked him for a donation.
0: Well, exactly, and he's not done making Scrooge look. The crew, the ghost, takes Scrooge to the moors. He says, see, he looks at another man and woman with their children and their children's children all singing. They're poor. He goes to the sea and he says men on a ship in a miserable condition, but they're humming Christmas tunes and thinking of their family. They're all fighting cynicism, holding on to their innocence that they could have relinquished just like Scrooge and made his choice. But then he swept away to his own family, the family that he should have been a part of. His sister, the one who he loved and who had died, her son's house. His nephew, Fred, has a beautiful home, a beautiful wife, friends, apparently a good education. All things Scrooge is dismissed as worthless. And he hears Fred talk about him. And Fred describes how miserable of a person Scrooge is. Fred's overly generous, honestly, in his description of Scrooge. Finally, the ghosts introduce Scrooge to ignorance and want. This is where Dickens takes his argument into the realm of social things. Uh, These are two children, but what happens to a society that's full of people like Scrooge's? Well, let's look at the children of such a society. They're hideous. And these are not images that you can feel pity for. They're not children you can feel sad for. They're foul, depraved, feral, beyond redemption. There is no innocence in these children. It's only darkness. He looks at these two awful and horrible monsters, and he again uses Scrooge's own words against him.
1: Have they no refuge or resource? cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons? said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve.
0: And this brings us to the final ghost. The first ghost kind of showed Scrooge how he got to this place. The second ghost wanted Scrooge to see who he was at that current moment and what the world was doing, other people were doing, to fight the cynicism and preserve the innocence around them. But then we get to this third ghost. He's different. This third ghost is going to show Scrooge
1: the way out. Well, this third ghost, to me, seems to be the darkest of the three ghosts. And uh, this section is the most psychological.
0: (laughs) Like the rest hasn't been?
1: Right, yeah. Well, neurologists and psychologists that study the science of stories really tell us that our brains are wired to understand the world through stories. I mean, our brains, which are really the most powerful thing on on Earth— Bar none. They differ from computers in that they can process way more information. And our brains process information through stories. And stories help us navigate our future and and really see the different options that we have before us. And they they really kind of help us answer the question of, what should I do?
0: Well, this ghost is clear. You should just die and start over. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Scrooge doesn't want to. He denies who the dead guy is. He refuses to look, but he finally relinquishes and he goes to the grave, and it's his grave.
1: Which, of course, is what no one wants to do. I <laughs> no, mean, we build our lives making decisions. Uh, you know, think of it as climbing a hill. We climb and climb and climb, and the last thing we want to do is, you know, tumble to the very bottom and admit that we've been climbing the wrong hill. And starting over, um, you know, except sometimes that's really the best option. But sometimes it's the only option, but it feels like a waste. And, and, and here's the word that Dickens plays around with. It feels like a waste of time.
0: And yet, it's also the Christmas idea of the nativity, baby Jesus, being born again, starting over, becoming a baby The last ghost basically shows Scrooge everything that will happen after he's gone from this earth, and it's all pretty terrible. It ends with Scrooge's death.
1: Before I draw near to that stone to which you point, says Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood, Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was as immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, red upon the stone of the neglected grave, his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge.
0: And then we get... To stave
1: five,
0: after death, resurrection, or redemption.
1: Yes, the idea of being, if you're willing to go to Hades, look in the darkness, see who you really are, it will be painful. Uh, It will be something you don't want to do because a lot has to die, ego and uh, negative relationships and who knows what else. And you have to be willing to kind of burn yourself to the ground. Uh, But if you do it, You get out and you get out of the chains that you built for yourself. You get out of that anxiety ridden unfreedom, you know, going back to Kierkegaard for a moment. And I know I'm quoting a philosopher, but it's what Dickens is talking about. No matter if you have a lifetime of neglect and mistakes, anyone can pull themselves out of their linear existence, jump into another cycle, start over and reinvent yourself, which, of course, is what Scrooge does and why this appeals so much.
0: Yeah, and the language of rebirth is very obvious. I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. That's what Scrooge says. You know, there's a sense that when you do that, you can reclaim some sort of innocence. You just give it up. William Wordsworth, another British poet who came a little before Dickens, said that famously, the child is father of the man, meaning to some degree that your childhood defines your adulthood, your experiences, your habits. And of course, that's true. But Dickens answers that and he says, yes, but you can reclaim that by dying, being reborn like a new child. There's another child inside of you and innocence can live again and perhaps That's the appeal of Christmas. Christmas reminds us every year that life is linear. True, it is, but it's also cyclical. We're always in the past, but there's more than that. We're not computers. We don't have input-output. We're always in the present, and we always have the future. And what does that mean? Well, for Scrooge, it meant agency. He clearly regrets how he treated the Cratchits, so the first thing he does is buy a turkey and send it over but then he lives in the present by walking through the streets and really looking around. And then he goes to Fred's house.
1: He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house.
0: He changes his attitude to the future. The one thing that happens to you after you die, I would imagine. I've never died to find out. But I would guess that you would lose your fear of dying, and the power of death would be broken.
1: This is where uh, I do want to suggest that this really is a fairy story, and we must remember it's an allegory, you know, not a textbook what happens to scrooge in one night you know this journey from bondage to freedom is a long difficult journey i want to say and, and i'll speak personally for myself i've made the journey to hades to use the language of the greeks and myself and uh, my experience was more like odysseus and it? it took years you know nothing overnight like we see here with scrooge but having said that The truth still remains that the path out of Hades does exist, even for someone as far gone as Scrooge, but no one gets out alone. We all need Marley's ghost to show us the way.
0: (laughs) Well, of course, the final pages kind of allude to the fact that even for Scrooge, we're only seeing the first day of a much longer journey. People talked about him. People laughed at him. Others criticized him. But he was free, and he just didn't have to care. And that's where we get to the final page of this
1: Carol in Prose. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good as a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him."
0: And there's the song of redemption. Any one of us can be made new. Anyone can reclaim childlike innocence in the face of guilt or cynicism. Maybe we don't need a ghost to show us the way. We have dickens at our elbow.
1: (laughs) I love that phrase. Uh, Or Tiny Tim with the all-inclusive, God bless us, everyone. So, from Christian and myself, Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays of all sorts to you, wherever you live in the world that we share together. We hope you have a wonderful end of year. And more than that, may you find something that is innocent, exciting, and maybe even redemptive in the new year to come. As always, please feel free to connect with us via any social media option. Visit our website, itpodcast.com. Leave us a review on your podcast app, And we wish you a Merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas and peace out.